1: Putin may one day raise so many tensions over Ukraine that unless he does something major, he's backed himself into a corner. And that's when war, a major war can start. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields.
0: Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Gall. My co-host, Jason Fields, is deep behind enemy lines and stuck in a meeting. So I am steering our leaky ship of mixed metaphors today. Social media has changed the way we live and work. Most of us are on Facebook, avoiding our families, and there's a good chance some of our listeners are staring at Twitter right now. It's changed everything, including war. Here to talk us through how war has changed is journalist and author David Petrakarikos. His new book, "War in One Hundred and Forty Characters: How Social Media Is Reshaping Conflict in the Twenty First Century," is all about this. David, thank you so much for joining us. All right. So, I think my first experience with kind of what you're talking about here came in 2008 during the Mumbai terror attacks. I remember learning about that and watching it on TV, and learning that both the the attackers and the victims were using Twitter and Flickr, I believe, to kind of coordinate and, and help each other out and also figure out where people were. And I'm wondering, when did you first realize that something was going on here, that, that social media was changing warfare itself?
1: Well, I mean, obviously social media had sort of gradually made its way into my life. So I was becoming increasingly aware of it, increasingly reliant on it. But it was only until I went to Ukraine and spent eight months covering the Russia-Ukraine war, that I really understood how it had begun to change conflict. Uh, because it, just four years earlier, in 2010, I'd been in the Congo, invading with the UN peacekeepers on the front lines uh, in the jungles against the Lord's Resistance Army. And, you know, those conflicts were four years apart, but it, it was I, I, as if I was covering a conflict in a different century. I mean, I understand one was in Africa where, you know, social media is less prevalent and one was in Europe, but nonetheless, it was clear that, you know, a very different kind of war had emerged in Russia, Ukraine than anything I'd seen before.
0: What was it about that conflict that struck a chord with you?
1: Well, I mean, pretty much everything. I mean, you know, if, if you look at a war as traditionally understood, you have two or more sides who, you know, have a fight in a an area almost as delineated as a boxing ring, and the, the winner, you know, achieves military victory and from there imposes a political settlement on the loser. But in Ukraine, you know, this wasn't happening. You know, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin had no intention of rolling into Ukraine and defeating the Ukrainian army, which in the beginning he easily could have done, and forcing the government to accept the settlement, let's say, accepting the annexation of eastern Ukraine as... He just stole in Crimea. That wasn't the goal. The goal was, and I was seeing this as I traveled from occupied cities in the east, like Donetsk, Luhansk, Slovyansk. The goal was to get eastern Ukrainians to subscribe to a particular narrative. And that narrative was that Kiev was following the Maidan revolution, which overthrew the Putin-backed Uh, Yanukovych, President Yanukovych, that uh, Kiev is now a fascist junta that was dominated by Nazis, intent on persecuting ethnic Russians in Ukraine and stamping out the speaking of uh, Russian in the country. And this, I mean, he had sent in troops across the border. He had uh, backed separatists, essentially to create a space to allow this narrative to seep in unfiltered. And that is not a military goal, that is a political goal. To get people to subscribe to to a particular narrative is a political goal. It's like when I spoke to uh, U.S. and uh, American American and British soldiers who would fought in Afghanistan, and they told me that the goal in the end became not to militarily defeat the Taliban, but to convince the local population not to join them, which is a political, not a military goal. So once I realized that actually this was the goal, you see that actually the dissemination of narratives, the dissemination of propaganda, becomes the ultimate goal. So, you know, propaganda is as old as war itself. But traditionally, as war is traditionally understood, propaganda has supported military operations on the ground. What I saw in Russia and Ukraine were military operations on the ground supporting propaganda operations in cyberspace and TV.
0: Military campaigns are meant to achieve a political end, typically, of right? So isn't this kind of cutting out one of the unpleasant parts in the middle, or at least, you know, scaling it back? Isn't, couldn't, couldn't it be argued that this is a good
1: thing, then? Well, it depends what your political goal is. Uh, if it's an extremely malign one, then no, because, you know, the, because the violence still exists. Uh, I mean, what, in fact... I mean, I think it's a negative thing because, as Russia-Ukraine showed, no war was ever declared. Yeah, it started with it started with Crimea when unidentified, when unidentified soldiers wearing uniforms with no insignia marched in. No war was declared, so no international organisation was able to react. And this is the basis of, of Russia's doctrine. Now, let's say, for example. Uh, The same thing happens in a NATO state, but no war is officially declared. What can be, what is done? I mean, Article 5, can it be invoked? We don't know. Uh, You know, it it stretches the rules of warfare as we understand it, and um, is predicated on a belief, especially coming from Russia, that 20th century institutions like NATO are obsolete. So in fact, it's more dangerous because what it does, by blurring, uh, by blurring war into politics, Clausewitz famously said, "War is a continuation of politics with other means, or by other means." Um, but this is war as politics, and when you elide the, the separation between war and politics, it becomes very dangerous. Because where does where does where does it end? Politics never ends, you know. So the the possibility for a greater chance of perpetual war is greater. So I mean, it may have some upsides in that perhaps battles don't have to be as ferocious as World War II, but it certainly has a lot of downsides uh, that I've outlined, I would argue.
0: Why do you think that Russia is so savvy and so savvy so quickly? Because it feels like the West is not playing the same game, right? It seems like Putin especially figured all of this stuff out very quickly.
1: I, I agree 100%. Um, I, the Russians have a tradition, obviously, which they call Maskedovka, of war, war by Deception, which again is obviously not unique to Russia, but they did figure this out very quickly, and I think Ukraine was a testing ground for all of this. Um, they, they are the first ones to have truly understood how to harness this new information technology. And when I say the first ones, what I mean is the first bad actors. Now, if you look at you know bad actors we might call totalitarian states, Iran, China, but Iran and China, they are clumsy. They censor the Internet, and you don't want to censor the Internet. That's why I call Putin a postmodern dictator, because he understands that you can... Russia, I mean, Russia is a dictatorship in all but name. But he still maintains that democratic veneer. So instead of the gulags and the firing squad, you have uh, fines for tax evasion or your NGOs shut down for zoning violations. What Putin understood early on, or what the Russians have understood, is is the dangers of what Evgeny Morozov called cyber utopianism. Many in the West, especially in Silicon Valley, thought that when social media emerged, when Web two emerged, the internet emerged, that this you know this would be transnational, it would bring us all together, and that you know it would spell the end for dictators and tyrants. And to a degree, you know there is some truth in that. You can't. Kill people on on mass now because anyone with a smartphone can broadcast your every sadism, your every brutality to the internet. But in the end, the same tools that democrats and uh, resistance people use will come to be used by you know what is used by the oppressed will come to be used by the oppressor. And Russia's caught on to this very quickly, very early, and you see the results. And we are behind them. And this is another point that I make that's very important, which is that. Democracies are at a disadvantage in this warfare because Russia can pretend to be what it isn't. It can set up troll farms. It can uh, lie brazenly. Now, obviously, uh, we in the West have information operations. Uh, we obviously have our own propaganda, but it, we cannot we cannot set up troll farms as they have in St. Petersburg, writing fake Ukrainian websites, and we cannot use trolls in the same way that Russia does, because all it would take was one newspaper expose in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times, and all hell would break loose. All right,
0: you, you mentioned the troll farms. I'm wondering if you can get into some of the other things that Russia is doing, like the nuts and bolts of this stuff, really kind of elaborate for our audience. What, you know, what are they doing specifically?
1: Well, they do a variety of things. We know recently, obviously, due to the tech hearings, that they bought a load of ads, Uh, that reached, I mean, they say, figures vary, but about 130 million people, I mean, almost the amount of people that voted in the 2016 presidential election. So they do that, which is, I mean, a lot of it is quite rudimentary. Uh, We have this idea that Russians are all, you know, chess-playing grandmasters, thinking 20 moves ahead. But a lot of the stuff they're doing is just throwing everything that the kitchen sink at the wall and hoping that 20% of it sticks. So they'll buy fake ads. They will uh, write fake articles, fake articles in the hope that they go viral. They will uh, create memes, anti, back then anti-Obama memes, anti-Hillary Clinton memes, pro-Donald Trump memes. Uh, and obviously, the thing with social media is that what is popular is, you know, there is no correlation between popularity and quality. In fact, quite the inverse. And often, whats is, what, what, is, what goes viral is what is most sensationalist. And obviously, what is most sensationalist is often not true. So essentially they, they will create memes, they will troll on Twitter and Facebook they will just deluge 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 with the, you know a narrative or conflicting narrative and if twenty percent of it works then it can make a difference and to take the recent election if let's say their ad did reach one hundred and thirty million people I mean when they say reach even if you know only a few million read them, if twenty percent of them of that number were affected then that you know, could well be enough to have swung the election for Donald Trump. I mean, it's serious, and this is the election of the most powerful person on earth.
0: But I also think that kitchen sink method, kind of doing everything they possibly can, is also about muddying the waters of their intentions. So it's never quite clear what they want,
1: right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail right on the head. And this is the, the interesting thing about the nature of modern Russian propaganda. If you look at old, you know, Soviet propaganda. It was clear, you know, it was to try to produce a positive image of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is the ideal society. The Soviet Union is utopia on Earth. Russia doesn't try to do this. Uh, I mean, look, I'm sure it would like to, but I suspect it knows it has no choice. You know, it has little chance of its message being being actually widely believed. So what it does is it, what it, does is it attempts. Do not convince anyone of a particular truth, but to send out so many bewildering narratives is to flood the information space with so many narratives that are effective not by their quality, but by their sheer volume. Now, I'll give you an example. I was in Ukraine when flight MH17 was shot down by what we now know was a Russian book missile given to uh, separatists by the Russian army. Now, I was in Ukraine and... News of a plane, uh, plane being shot down over. It's a civilian plane, a civilian airliner, which is obviously key here. And within minutes, you know, it was the, the, the trolling started. It was the Ukrainians that did it. It was the Americans that did it. It was the Ukrainians and the Americans that did it. Now, the point was not to, to create a clear counter-narrative, but essentially to flood the space with so many narratives that unless you're, you know, a political excessive like you or me... You know, normal people have lives. If you were trying to go on Twitter to find out what was going on, you know, you couldn't, um, you know, there was so much stuff, you didn't, wouldn't know where to start. And this is the fundamental point. It is to create so much information, to create so much, so many narratives, that it weakens people's propensity to recognize the truth when they see it. That is at the heart of it.
0: I think that's a really powerful example, too, because there have been previous you know, similar instances, even even as far back as as a decade or two decades ago, where, you know, a major airliner getting shot down would have drawn the international community into that conflict.
1: Yeah, and and it did. You know, people lined up to contend Putin. It did, but perhaps not quite to the degree that it would have done 20 years ago. You're absolutely right.
0: All right, War College listeners, we are going to pause there for a break. We're on with David Patrick Haracost talking about his new book, War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, Welcome back, War College listeners. You are on with David Patrick Karakos. We are talking about his new book, War and 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about uh, you know, some of the major players that are using social media effectively. Has it also empowered previously powerless groups and given them advantages?
1: Absolutely. Uh, and I think we, we, we look at and I look in my book at uh, the Israeli 2014 Operation Protective Edge, and in my book I focus on a character called Farah Bakr. Now, Farah during Operation Protective Edge was six; she was a sixteen-year-old, well, essentially child. I mean, 16 a sixteen-year-old child. Uh, obviously, in Gaza, a deeply patriarchal society. So, as a sixteen-year-old girl in war, you would thought you can't get anyone much more powerless than that, but through the use of a smartphone, uh, an ability to speak English, and more than this, an ability to create an extremely powerful narrative, uh, she became the face for many people of Palestinian suffering, and she, she gained around a quarter of a million Twitter followers, she was covered in major newspapers from the US to the UK to the Arab world, and you know, the traction she got online, I mean, the effect she would have had on Israel's military calculations uh, was, you know, probably negligible. But at, in, a, you know, in a period where major states fight asymmetric wars, the guards the and gar- the Palestinians are never, ever, ever going to be able to win at the military level. But people like Farrar enable them to win at the information level. And this is very important because a country like Israel, as powerful as it may be, is still a very small country. And in order to fight wars, it needs to have it needs to win the discursive battle, uh, to put it like that. It needs, you know, it gets sold weapons by the US and it needs to justify its use. And, you know, this Israeli discursive arguments are centered on the right to project Jewish life for virtually any cost, the right for sovereignty, and these you know, the only democracy in the Middle East. And these are powerful arguments, especially in Washington, especially in uh, Berlin. Obviously, Israel loses the discursive war in many places, the entire Arab world, parts of South America, parts of Europe but it wins it where it counts because fundamentally it, it, you know it can win at that discursive level the problem is and you know this is widely accepted generally by the American establishment and the American people for example but you know when you start seeing images of dead children that are being tweeted by Palestinians on the ground then some of the principles don't matter so much you know the lady in West Virginia who you know who agrees arbitrarily with Israel's right to defend itself against terrorists, is now looking at dead children, and she doesn't care about that abstract argument anymore. She just doesn't want to see dead children. So someone like Farah, who is documenting the atrocities, but more than that, was creating a narrative of her life. It was interesting. She wasn't saying, look, three people killed tonight, ten Israeli airstrikes. She was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, I might die tonight. Here's a picture of my six-year-old sister. She's terrified with screaming. And she created an ongoing narrative. And this is the key. She wasn't dry documentary facts. And because of who she was, she was telegenic, she was young, she was female. It really, really, really created a storm. And it empowered the Palestinian cause to a degree that would not have been possible 15 years ago. Because the Palestinians cannot win at the military level. They cannot. They never will be able to. So the only thing they can try to do is win at the information level. And in 2014, they did. Israel lost that war in the public uh, in, in, in the course of public opinion, and that is huge because it makes the next war that much harder to fight.
0: Do you think that cold hard facts, divorced from uh, a personality and a strong narrative, are weaker in this new game?
1: Absolutely. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, social media. What does social media reward? It does not. It, it rewards the sensationalist. It rewards the emotive. It works against the nuance and the thought. Uh, you know, and the thoughtful. Twitter, for example, you could only write, you know, two sentences until recently. They doubled the, the word, the character count. Okay, now you can write four sentences. The problem is, is, you know, what I call the charisma of certainty. It is, you know, if you could be certain about something, you can say, yes, you know, Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring out of a pizzeria. You can say, yes, Israel are baby killers. Where, in fact, the truth is, well, look, on the one hand, I mean, not not as regards Hillary Clinton, that was clearly rubbish. But, you know, whereas, you know, in the Israeli context, you say, yes, obviously there are civilian casualties, but there are always civilian casualties. No one wants to hear that. You know, no, there is no room for that. And social media platforms do not reward that kind of nuanced, thoughtful approach, because for a start, it's too long and nobody reads it. They reward visuals, they reward music, they reward the emotive, and they reward the sensationalist. But absolutely, cold hard facts. Look, social media is what is it? It's it's essentially emotion without context. And what the Israelis tried to do was give context to the emotion, and they were always going to come off second best.
0: Are the facts just not as sexy? Is there a way to is there a way to 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 bring truth and reality back into this conversation? Do you think?
1: Yes, and people try. And look, it's not as if let's not get carried away. Everybody knows that Russia, you know, everybody in the West knows that Russia is responsible ultimately for the downing of MH17. It's not as if Russia has convinced, you know, the entire American public that it was, in fact, the Ukrainians that shot it down. So, you know, we're not losing totally. The problem is that all you need is a few shifts at the time because it took two years. For um, the report on MH17 to come out, uh, we now know Russian interference may may have swung the election for Donald Trump. No one was really talking about fake ads at the time. There was a lot of talk about Russia collusion, but at the time, uh, there was there was no idea that the Russians were doing this in, in such a way. So we are losing little battles, but you know we're not. The, the war isn't lost yet. It's, we're not in a stage where. Great lies are believed en masse. But what is happening is that people are being convinced of stuff in real time, and bad actors are taking advantage of this. And, as I say, look, cold hard facts are not sexy. They're just not sexy. And platforms, again, I return to this again and again, they do not reward nuance. They, you know, people want dopamine hits from retweets, you know, rushes from likes. You know, if you want to have a serious and considered conversation about politics, The last place you want to be is Twitter, because all you'll get is either sensationalism or an argument.
0: On that note, can you define the battlefields for us a little bit? In terms of conflict, what's the difference between Twitter, and how does it differ from Facebook and
1: Instagram? I mean, okay, if you want to follow a war in real time, Twitter is the go-to place, which is why um, it's it's, it's essentially um, what the IDF for example, was most concerned about, it was Farrar's most uh, important tool because that's when things are happening in real time. So if there is an Israeli raid on Gaza, then you've got Farrar tweeting, Israeli tanks are rolling in, there's gunfire all around, I'm terrified, I'm terrified, I'm terrified. Meanwhile, the Israeli going, we have launched this operation, we are doing X, Y, Z to avoid civilian casualties. So the, but, the, you know, but Twitter, at the same time, is relatively small. And most you know, where everybody lives is Facebook, so Facebook is better when you want to mobilize people. It's for the longer game. You know, it's, it's when you want to, to, to post that fake article about Donald Trump or that fake article about Ukraine. So it can be read at leisure or at greater leisure than a Twitter anyway. Instagram, I mean, is very good because it's the visuals. But you can get the visuals on Twitter anyway. So the two most important platforms in conflict are Twitter and Facebook. Twitter for real time and real, you know, hysteria, drumming up hysteria, Facebook for the longer, you know, 30-day drip, 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 drip of pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli propaganda, depending on, who, you know, on who you support.
0: How do you see the West, and specifically the U.S. military, catching up in all of these areas? Because normally when I hear about their, their interactions with Facebook or Twitter, it's it's a scandal, like Marines United, something like that. How do we change that?
1: There just needs to be a huge cultural and. Um, There just means a huge shift in the way people um, understand and react to social media. I mean, if you've read the the counterterrorist chapter in my book, you'll see that a State Department division designed to counter ISIS propaganda was totally outgunned and completely defeated by what were essentially a few thousand ISIS fanboys, probably many of them just teenagers, you know, who were just there on Twitter. And this is the problem, I mean, the US, in, the US government is an institution and it is by its nature bureaucratic, bloated, things have to go up the chain of command, uh, it's very conservative, it's very risk averse, it's generally at the high level staffed by middle aged men, it's not particularly diverse and they just don't get it. Uh, what needs to be done is more has to be farmed out to third parties, uh, messaging has to come from third parties. And people have to be given more freedom. I talk about Homo Digitalis in the book, which is you know the hyper empowered networked individual, which is why in my book perhaps the most successful character is Elliot Higgins, who uses open source material. Here's a guy who is an online nerd war gamer, uh, who who essentially took those skills and ended up proving that the Russians provided the missile that shot down MH17. And that, by the way, if you want to understand the shift in power between institutions like governments to individuals and Networks of individuals, Elliot Higgins is the classic case, him and just a few guys hanging out using entirely open source material made the Russian government, the government of the world's largest country, come out specifically in several press conferences to rebut his work. Now, can you imagine the Russian government coming out to rebut the work of three civilian, essentially non-entities 20 years ago? I mean, it, it's ludicrous. It would never happen.
0: Not only that, they, they send reporters to his home constantly to ha- try to harass and undermine him, it's a it's a it's a big deal for them to um, delegitimize Bellingcat and Elliot Higgins.
1: Yeah, totally. They they've tried to troll him, they've undermined him, they've written hit jobs on him. Yeah, I mean, he's become a real threat. This lone guy living in a small British town. He was a, previously a payments officer for a women's lingerie company. He's, he's now on on Russia's radar.
0: What do you see as the role of trolls? In all of this and controls be used for good do you think
1: well the role of a troll is is as I said before to help muddy the water that's the point whether it be creating fake memes writing fake articles you know commenting uh, you know tweeting Facebooking anything it's to muddy the waters to muddy the narrative to do anything they can to chip away at certainty that's a troll in my opinion can they ever be used for good the problem is Again, look, I'm not trying to say that, you know, Britain or America, we're so honourable, we wouldn't do this. My issue is if we tried to do it, someone, we'd get caught and immediately there'd be a big scandal, we'd have to shut it down. It goes back to saying we cannot use trolls in the same way because we get caught out and we'd be held to account. This is why democracies are at a disadvantage uh, to dictatorships in this great online narrative war that is going on. Controls be used for good? No, not by, not by good actors. I don't believe they can. What good actors need to do is to debunk myths, not create more myths. Because then, it just, then no, you know, if you can't even trust your own side, then you know, everything is lost. So I, I think trolls are a bad thing. I think the name is quite apt. You know, troll itself is not a, a positive name. Uh, we need anti-trolls. We need more anti-trolls. Look, what we need to do is train armies of Elliot Higgins. That's what we need to do. That's what the government needs to do ASAP. You know, security vet them, do all that, and then let them loose and let them do their work because their work is effective. They're not constrained by, so you know, so they would obviously have oversight. But, you know, we, it's a 50-year-old guy sitting in the State Department somewhere writing a long piece on why ISIS is bad. It's just not going to reach anyone, and no one's going to care.
0: We've touched a little bit on how authoritarian regimes are looking at this stuff and dealing with it, and specifically Russia, you know, is. is way ahead of the curve of most state actors. Uh, let's talk a little bit about more about like Turkey, Iran, China, and what they're doing wrong. And if you think they'll ever, you know, take a page out of the Russian playbook.
1: Well what they're doing wrong is as I've said before, censoring the internet. Uh, they banned, you know, I mean Facebook is banned in many places. Erdogan, didn't he try and take down Twitter recently? I, I don't I forget. I mean, this is bad because the optics are very bad. If you're a dictator, the, you know, the last thing you want to look like is a dictator. Um, Iran is the same thing. They, they, but they, they, I mean, Turkey is, was more European, I mean, you know, supposedly more Western-facing. Iran is, yeah, I mean, Iran is now, is getting more savvy, but essentially, you know, these these states are still behind. China? China is interesting because, It's more concerned, essentially, with policing its own population. So censoring the Internet actually isn't so bad for them. What they're doing is using a lot of, I mean, they have have essentially a lot of paid bloggers who whip up feeling because they have um, issues in the South China Sea, as you know, because there are islands there that they believe are Chinese. And what they do is they have armies and armies of state bloggers blogging about this and whipping their populations up into a frenzy about these islands. So essentially they use the website to A, police and shield their own populations from things that they don't like, and B, to whip their populations into frenzies to support issues that they do like. They also, incidentally, I mean, you have things like the Cloud School, which which is truly chilling, which is... An online credit score that essentially evaluates you as a human being and can affect your job prospects and indeed your prospects of a mate, a partner, whatever. So they're slightly different issues. The danger comes, and this is you know my big concern, and I say this in the book, is that you know when I you know the more I read about you know from Russian publications, uh, you know English language ones. Saying you know Ukrainians are fascists, they're this, they're that, they're trying to kill Russian speakers. The more Russians got outraged, going yes, we must kill these fascists, we must do something about it. Same with China, and they run the risk that one day, you know, like 1914, no one really wanted to go to war, but it, for many of for the, many of the you know for the for, for the Kaiser for people like that, it came to the point where if they didn't do something, they risked losing their own their own throne or their own their own government. But, you know Putin may one day. Raised so many tensions over Ukraine that unless he does something major, he's backed himself into a corner, and that's when war, a major war, can start. And that's what concerns me. And you see that with China, with the population getting very angry, and there comes a point where, if you spend years telling everyone look what's happening in the South China Sea and you don't do anything about it, you you lose too much face, and you have to do something, and then conflict starts.
0: Can I get you to tease out? Uh, a little aside, you had just now um the the ten cent driven Chinese social credit thing I think this is this is something i 've been reading about for a while now, uh, and I think it's kind of frightening. Can you explain to the audience a little bit more about what that
1: is sure i mean look i 'm not a huge expert on this. I will be honest now. I generally do not use the word Orwellian because it is such a cliche, and first of all. The, the brilliance of Orwell was not predicting the future. I mean, 1984 did not come true. but was actually in deconstructing and, and exposing fascism, Stalinism, and imperialism for the lies they were. But this, this is, you know, straight out of 1984. Essentially, what this cloud score does is it tracks your shopping habits, it tracks your browsing habits, it tracks your banking habits, your eating habits, and creates a score for you. So, for example, it's like a credit score, but for you as a human. And we've come to a point, uh, Matthew, where let's say your credit score is a 50 because you've done some things that, uh, that the Chinese government doesn't approve of. Maybe you looked at a couple of websites that weren't so good. Maybe you're a bit of, in their eyes, an irresponsible spender. Who knows? And if you want to meet a lady and her score is 70 and your score is 50, she's, she's, you know, you're not going to be right for her. Um, it is truly chilling. It's essentially commod- it's the commodification of the human being. And that is actually, yeah, truly chilling. And that is Orwellian. That is one thing I would say is Orwellian. Um, Yeah, it's not related to conflict, but it gives you an example of, you know, where this all can lead. Um, Because, you know, you can do this now. Facebook, Facebook, if Facebook wanted to do it, it could do it. It has all our information. So, uh, extremely frightening. Uh, And this is... Why, in the end, I say that the story of social media is, in a sense, the the story of the rise and fall of hope. We started out so hopeful, and and we understand now just how dangerous it is. And this is why I think we're in a bad place. Uh, Our information environment is extremely unhealthy. And I think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better.
0: I think that is a wonderful place to end the conversation on uh, here at War College. We, yeah,
1: very nice and cheerful.
0: Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's kind of a th- running theme, actually, on War College, is we always, end on a dep- <laughs> we always end on a depressing note. Sorry, the book is War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. David, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: All right, War College listeners, that is your episode for this week. I produced and hosted this week as Jason Fields was otherwise indisposed. He will be here next week, though, as we are talking to Marty Scoveland Jr. about his recent embed with Afghanistan's Special Operations Forces. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about the American Amer- special forces in Afghanistan; I'm talking about the Afghan special forces in Afghanistan. It's an interesting episode, and on a rare note for us actually ends positively so please come back and check that out we will be off the next week uh because it's christmas and we're all going to be spending some time for the holidays with our families uh there will be a rerun that that week probably not something about russia though ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well